Thank you, Jessica. Good morning. Good to be in the house of the Lord this morning. And the place looks great. I know that we'll have an opportunity to have praise and prayer at the end, but I just praise God for all the servants that came out yesterday and served the Lord and served one another on a uh, work day. It was beautiful weather, and it's very evident that you guys worked very hard. I wasn't able to be uh, participating yesterday, um, but you did a great job. Everybody pitched in, and it's very evident, so I praise God for your hard work for the work day. Well, we are, this is a communion Sunday, and so we on communion Sundays have been examining the Psalms, and the Psalms are basically God's songbook, and the, the saints of the Old Testament, through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, literally, literally penned songs that were to be pray, that were to be sung as praise to Almighty God. And so we want to examine these psalms and we want to be moved along with the Holy Spirit, as Peter says in in first Peter, that it doesn't come from man prophecy and God's word that's proclaimed. It comes uh, through the Holy Spirit, men through that are moved through the Holy Spirit. And so we are examining God's holy inspired word and we want to be moved along with the Holy Spirit this morning as we examine these psalms. And we will be in Psalm 135. And our, our desire, at least the goal for examining these songs, is to offer God our highest praise. To just sit at the feet of Christ and to learn so that as we come together as the saints of God and corporately offer our praise, that we exalt God with all our heart and our mind. I'm going to go ahead and read all of Psalm 135. Praise the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Give praise, O servants of the Lord, who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God. Praise the Lord, for the Lord is good. Sing to his name, for it is pleasant. For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel, as his own possession. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the depths. He it is who makes the clouds rise on the end of the earth, who makes lightnings from the from the rain and brings forth the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and of beast, who in your midst, O Egypt sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings. Sion, king of the Amorites, and On, king of Bashan, and all the kingdom of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people, Israel. Your name, O God, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. 
So do all who trust in them. O house of Israel, bless the Lord. O house of Aaron, bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion. He who dwells in Jerusalem, praise the Lord. The first thing I want to look is found in the first uh, two verses of this psalm. And that is that the psalm, in essence, it's a it's an appeal or an invitation for the people of God to praise God Almighty. We find that in the first two verses. And the word praise the Lord or that phrase is mentioned seven times in this psalm. So the message is loud and clear. It's an appeal. It's an invitation for God's people to offer him praise. And the word praise is there in the psalm an additional four times. The challenge is to praise the Lord. And you'll recall, since we have been in the Psalms uh, for many times now, that when it comes to praise, praise is more of a lifting up of God and worship is more of a bowing down before God. And so praise has to do with the joy and the excitement and the expression of lifting the name and exalting the name of God as high as possible. And worship is more of of, of reverence. It's a bowing down, even a kissing the feet, uh, if you will. It's that devoted soul, that submissive soul. And so all of the idea of lifting up and yet bowing down and lifting up and bowing down, it's a whole package of what is entailed when it comes to worshiping and praising Almighty God. The psalm begins with the appeal, praise the Lord. And then the psalm ends with the appeal, Praise the Lord. And the idea is that from beginning to end, from the beginning of an event or from the beginning of the day to the end, from the beginning of the year to the end, all of life, the psalmist says, should be filled and filled and filled with praise to God. There's plenty of things that are good and there's plenty of things to be excited about, uh, to express our emotions about. But God should be lifted the highest. God deserves the absolute highest level of praise. As we think about praise, praise is not something that we create in and of ourselves. Praise is something that God created within the fabric, the material and the spiritual fabric of the universe. It's something that because God is eternal, praise happens all the time. Praise occurs eternally in eternal eternal past and the eternal future. And it's something that we are created into and we are invited or even called to enter into and participate in. But everything is created to glorify God, both material and spiritual, to glorify God and to honor God and glorify God in the act of praise. And so... We get to participate in it. We get to join in what is already taking place. Praise is a part of our spiritual journey. Praising God is very, very important in our spiritual nourishment and in our spiritual growth. It's something that we should continue to grow in. And that is offering God a high level of praise. God Because God created praise, as a matter of fact, within the Trinity, praise takes place before anything was created. Uh, 
God glories in himself. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They glory in themselves. They encourage one another. They praise one another. They're enthralled with the holiness and the beauty and the splendor and the purity. And so praise takes place and we join right into it. And because of who God is, when it comes to praise, God never has an off day where he is not worthy of our highest praise. We're called to praise by psalmist after psalm after psalm after psalm. So praise in the scripture is not just a suggestion. Praise in the scripture isn't something that depends on our mood. Praise in the scripture is not something that depends on what's going on in our lives. It doesn't depend on how good life is or how bad life is for us. It it doesn't depend on where we are in our journey with Christ. It doesn't depend on how happy we happen to be that day or how grumpy we happen to be that day. Praise is something that God deserves all the time. He never has an off day. He's never less worthy of the greatest amount of praise. Praise does not depend or is not generated generated by us in the sense that, you know, in our own thinking, maybe God's not, not so great. Maybe we're going through some times and we think, eh, I'm only going to give God this much based on my understanding or based, with, or based on what's going on in my life. And sometimes we wrongly gauge praise. It turns out usually to be more focused on ourselves instead of the God who is so worthy about it. And a lot of times, because our bent is sinful, our bent is to reject God and to fulfill ourselves selfishly, uh, then a lot of times um, we, we want God to conform to our likes instead of conforming our lives to what pleases God to the utmost. So good, solid praise is to be our habit as God's people, is to be our passion and our endeavor, both individually and corporately. You will recall that the very word worship um, in, in the Old Testament has to do with the bowing down, but also the English version has to do with worship. So you've been told many times that when it comes to worship and praise, we are ascribing God his worth. He reveals himself in Scripture. We believe that we agree in the very pure character of God and and we just find ourselves ascribing worth to God because he's worthy of it. There's lots of definitions of Scripture, I mean, of, of worship. That are very good. And I found another one that is very good that I'm going to present to you that helps us maybe bend our mind around the idea of praise so that we can understand it just a little more clearly. And this definition, it's a great definition. I thought about memorizing it and then it was too hard and I said, forget it. I'm just going to read it. I'm going to quote it. But it's by Archbishop of Canterbury, William Temple. And listen to how holistic it is to, to praise and to worship God. And I'm sharing this because that's what we do as a church. We endeavor, we want, we're called to praise God. 
So the archbishop says to worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind with the truth of God. To purge the imagination by the beauty of God. To open the heart to the love of God. To devote the will to the purpose of God. There's, there's an anticipation that when we enter into a time of praise, God is meeting us, God is nurturing our souls, and we're, we're pouring our hearts out. And there's a cry in every crevice of our heart that says, change me, O God, conform me, O God. And I know that life is filled with trials and life is filled with distractions. And there may be times when we come to church and we want it to be all about us. And, and we have a hard time breaking our minds away from the world and the, the cares of life. There are many, many burdens. And yet the scripture calls us out of that and says, God first. God first. And when we behold God and we behold his glory, that's what pushes away the distractions. And we're reminded of the, of the words of God himself through Christ. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all the concerns and all the other things that swirl around and they're real. And they're hard and they're tough. All these things that we're surrounded with, they'll be taken care of. But the first thing, most preeminent thing is to offer God. Ascribe to God great, great worth. And as we give ourselves to him in praise, he changes us and he ministers to us. And really, as we give ourselves to God, we become recipients of an incredible supernatural nurturing that takes place. That enables us to be the, the people of God that God has called us to be. So really, as we, uh, we ascribe our minds to beholding God, Paul says in Corinthians, you're changed. One degree of glory at a time. It's amazing what takes place when we properly offer God the praise that he deserves. We ourselves are changed. God doesn't need to be changed. He's perfect. That's point two, part of point two. But we change our hearts the way we think, the way we wrestle, wrestle with everything that is thrown at us in this life. Even wrestle with the hard things we find in Holy Scripture. We are changed by beholding the glory of God. And so if worship doesn't have the preeminence of God at its very heart, at, it's the foundation of everything that comes out of us has to be the preeminence of God. Our absolute main focus, our main goal in life, then it's not really proper worship. It might be pretty good worship, but worship that's off a little bit or way off. God needs to be the absolute focus. And we really need to understand and grasp this concept because, unfortunately, the way our culture drives itself these days, it's very self-focused. Everything, the message of it, everything is about you. The whole world should revolve around every little need and every little twinkling that you have and your dreams and your visions and every little urging of every little thing you want. And we're constantly fed that. And it's the exact opposite of what the scripture teaches that that worship is. Worship is that everything is about God. Everything revolves around God. And we're just graciously invited in 
to be a part of this majestic king and this kingdom and the world that he's redeeming. Now, worship is not about ourselves. We do benefit from it greatly. And we are certainly a part of it. But it is primarily about God and our tendency. Even those of us that are mature in the faith, our tendency is to is to kind of want to get jockey ourselves back in the position and make worship about our ourselves. And we have to fight that as a church. We have to fight that as individuals. And, and my appeal to you is throughout this message is give your heart to Christ. Make sure that what you're exclaiming is that Christ is at the center. He is more important than anything that we could ever know or experience in this life. The benefits come as our souls are nurtured. And there's this exchange because there's an anticipation when we properly worship God, he's going to minister to us. That's just what he does. He's good. He knows every need and care we have. So when we ascribe to him his worth, then he comes and he strengthens and he nurtures. And, and right in the middle of a time of praise, he can use a lyric that rebukes or strengthens those that are weak. And all of this dynamic happens for those that live for the glory of God. So how we personally feel about how praise is going down or how it's affecting me is really secondary to the whole purpose of what praise was created for. And our tendency, again, is to make it about us. And it's not an option. We praise, nor is praise a performance. We don't want to get caught up with that idea. We're so advanced in music technology today. I mean, the things just sound so much better, so much clearer. I mean, you can even... There's techno, technology today where you can just take a terrible voice and make it on the top 50 charts these days with digital technology. I mean, we're just getting better and better. Things sound so good. And that's not worship. Making something sound spectacular really isn't praise. Now, it's wonderful if it sounds good, but that's not what's at the heart of praise. Perfecting our sound system. The heart of praise is offering, offering what we have and who we are to God, who redeems our hearts and transforms our minds. It's lining our thoughts and our, and our spirits up with him, desiring to give our all to him. That's really what worship is all about. So we, we're constantly being challenged to kind of get off track with worship, even in good ways that are misleading. There are a lot, if you think about worship in terms of the big picture, and this psalm has really challenged me. If you think about worship in the big picture, think about all of the people around the world, little groups, churches way smaller than ours, way larger than ours, or just little house groups, people that may be even just meeting and singing quietly because their lives are in danger for just proclaiming Christ. I mean, what, kind, what does it sound like when saints get together and maybe sing a song in a different language? Maybe even with no instruments. Raspy voices, people of all ages, whatever it is. Can that possibly be um, pleasing to God? If you take away a spectacular sound system 
And even if you take some of the best voices in the congregation out, can we still offer dynamic, pleasing praise to God? It goes up in every language. It goes up with every voice inflection, every style of, even cultural style of music and rhythm and beats that you can imagine all over the face of the earth. And God can be pleased by every people group and every voice, every utterance and every sound if it's offered to him in scriptural ways where we just are giving and conforming our lives to him and not demanding that he conforms his life to make our lives more comfortable. And our culture is constantly challenged. And a lot of the worships, and and it's just so easy to slip into a man-centered, my comfort zone kind of praise. And a lot of the music that goes out today is focused on, dare I say it, appealing to man. And not God. I mean, there is great music out there and there's great songs that really appeal to man. And really are written to appeal to man because they do. And we can be very successful at appealing to man with our lyrics and the beat of a song. But our main goal is to appeal to God. Our main goal is to please God. To sing with whatever we have been given. So a person that can barely even get anything out with their pipes. Can offer incredible praise to God. With a heart that's been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You see, you see the, the, the difference in the emphasis? Now if God wanted praise to always be a certain way then wouldn't he just create every human being with angelic voices? I mean, doesn't that seem like just to make sense? And then, you know, he's going to bless every church with incredible sound system and everybody, every saint is only going to be a saint because they have a good voice. Because then it's going to sound so great. And that's what we're after, right? We're after just this glorious, great sound. It's not what we're after. That's wonderful and it's helpful by all means. But we are after the heart of God. We're after giving ourselves to God. That is our goal and needs to maintain and stay as our goal. So it's not, I know that there are things that are popular with man and a lot of songs are written so that they maybe can top the charts and praise music and so forth. But we want to top God's charts. Bring what we have. Impress him, appeal to him. Whether it appeals to man or not. Because that is the whole point of worship. When the, when the psalmist appeals to us and invites us to praise the Lord. All of that is what we want to keep in mind. As we engage in the act and the privilege. And the obedience of praise. Now that's what we have. New Covenant Fellowship. We bring who we are. We bring what Christ has made us. And we conform ourselves into the image of Christ. In every act of praise. As a kingdom outpost. That's what the world needs. They need a living vibrant community. That is on fire for Christ. Not the latest hit. Or the best song. But because God is best. People that are excited about. The otherworldly aspect. Of being a Christian. 
And that's our task. And these are the attitudes that we want to discipline ourselves to bring to the table when we worship him. It's interesting that in the verse first two verses, we also find that this appeal to praise is for the people of God. It's for the saints. They're called to come to the temple. And they're called to come with this attitude of adoration and praise. It's the servants of the Lord. These are the saints of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, you know that there were certain times a year where the males of a certain age, uh, everybody was welcome, but mandatory males of a certain age come a minimum of three times a year, but, but preferably for all the feasts and for any time you wanted to go to the temple to offer your praise and your sacrifices. So you have to realize that as spread out as the people of God were, they were called and required to drop whatever they were doing. No matter what season, I mean, God came first. No matter what else was going on in your life, you made the trip. It could be at the most convenient time. It could be at the most inconvenient time. You made the trip to offer your praise to God because he's worthy. And people, some people live very close. Some people lived very far away. They made the trip. They made it a priority to go and worship God. And you know, just like we do, we, they came with different attitudes, different things going on in their lives. Sometimes a great attitude and sometimes a terrible attitude, but they came and they offered their praise to God. They made the trip. Whether it was difficult or not, they made the trip because that's what you do as a saint. The people, if you are a child of God, then you have literally been called to praise God. It's, it's a privilege, but it's a calling and it's an act of obedience. And so that's what they did. The saints of old, they came and they worshiped. They came and they offered their praise to God. And that's what we do in New Covenant Fellowship. And we, some of you guys live really close. You could, if you felt like it, could walk to church, some of you. And others, it takes a lot of planning in advance to make sure that you make it in time. I don't know that anybody does make it in time, but at least there is some planning <laughs> that is involved. But that is our aim, that God be glorified, that God be pleased. And there's good reason for that. Second, we find there's reasons that we praise God. I'm going to, um, there's more reasons, it's not exhausted, but I'm going to pull seven reasons why we praise God out of this song. First of all, because the Lord is good, verse three, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. So we want to be thinking about, as we have today and in the future, opportunities to praise God. These are some good, solid reasons. God is just so worthy of our praise. And the first thing he mentions is that God is good. He's just good. He's a good God. His reputation is good. His nature is good. He's good at everything he does. His heart is good. His judgments are good. His wisdom is good. His power is good. His plan is good. His knowledge is good. When he made all things, when he brought all things into existence, he said they're good too. So his, his created acts are good. 
everything about God is good and there's there's nothing about him that could be improved at all. He brings perfection to the table in all things that he does. The psalmist uh, Psalm 34, 8 says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's an awesome verse. And the 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 uh, the word taste means to to contemplate, to experience, to perceive and to examine. And the idea is that the more time we take to just examine God, the more we will find he is just good. You can look at him from this angle and then turn it a little bit and then this way and flip it. And every angle that we look at God and the more we meditate upon him, we will find, wow, he is a good God. He is worthy of my praise. Another reason to praise the Lord is because of God's sovereign election. Verse four, for the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel as his own possession. God set his sovereign love on Israel, on Jacob. Israel represents the nation, the people, the Jews. He chose Israel to, to be his beloved. He invited them into his kingdom and he has a plan for them. He he adopts them in. He he sets his affect his affection on this people. It's a sovereign choice and a sovereign election. And it references his his goodness. And the interesting thing about the psalmist, he's a, he's calling us to praise God for his sovereign election. He chose Jacob and Israel got their name through Jacob. God changed Jacob to Israel. And so, of course, you remember the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's interesting, this whole idea of sovereign election. And the Apostle Paul enlightens us to it in Romans chapter 9. The idea is that God just set his affection on individuals, not because of anything they brought to the table or anything they've done. And Paul takes us through this argument. And he talks about Abraham, the patriarch, how God chose him. And, of course, Abraham's basically a pagan. And God calls him. He gives him a calling and brings him into uh, faith, a gift of faith. And he brings him in and he gives him a, a plan and a task and a part to play in the kingdom. And then um, not Ishmael, but Isaac was the chosen one. And you think, well, Abraham had great faith. Maybe that's why God chose him. And, and um, Isaac... He was pure blood and Ishmael wasn't. And then he talk about Jacob. And what do you do with Jacob? Jacob's not the kind of person that you would choose to be on your goodness team, that you would choose to to as a part of accomplishing the missions of Christ, which, of course, is righteousness. The the argument about Jacob and the whole thing that makes God so worthy of our praise is that Jacob was that rascal. And maybe you could in your own mind justified. Well, Abraham had a few good things going for him and Isaac had a few good things going for him. And then you come to this guy, Jacob, and he's a rascal. He's just a rascal and he, he betrays even his loved one, his, his own family, and he's very self-focused and doesn't care a lot about God. And God set his affection on him. It's, it's a sovereign election that is worthy of God's praise. And I know that we have good qualities about us because we're created in the image of God. 
And if we look hard enough, we can find some good characteristics or attributes about ourselves. But none of that is good enough to get us into heaven. Scripture teaches us we we're, we're chosen. So the Apostle Paul builds this up and he says in Romans chapter nine, Rebecca and Isaac, they're, they're expecting twins, as you know, and not only so, but also when Rebecca had connect had conceived children by one man, our forefather, Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad. What happened before they were ever even born and before they had a chance to display their goodness, if there was any goodness in them. In order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. That's the whole point of election. It is a calling that's based on mercy alone. And you can't base it on works if you're not even alive to do the works that you're supposed to base it on, right? It's just this, the sovereign God who's always good and he's always righteous, always makes right decisions. He, ch- he chooses people, elects people into the kingdom. And the psalmist says that's something to behold him. That's something to praise him for. Because if we, have, if we are in the kingdom of God, it is because of his calling of mercy and grace. And I know it's humbling and, it, and we, we might prefer to think, well, at least I had a little bit to do with it, right? I mean, you saw something in me. That's not what the Scripture... We might come with that conclusion, but that's not what the Scripture concludes. It's just a sovereign, merciful thing that God does. And He's worthy of praise. And then third, because of His creative wonders in verses 5 through 7. For I know that the Lord is great, yet it is... Yet it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth the wind from the storehouses. That's an appeal to nature as a reason. God created all this. and It's it's incredible how the universe functions. As a matter of fact, mankind is so impressed with nature that sometimes that's what they worship. That nature is so incredible that some people live for it and worship it and even die for nature. And yet the scripture teaches that, yeah, it's incredible, it's spectacular, but it points to something even better. And that's creator God. Praise God for his sovereign creative acts and how good they are. He is the God of the wonders of our galaxy. We might even sing that song as a praise song this morning. Wonders beyond our galaxy. Another reason to praise God today and always is his persistent grace. Won't reread it, but it's verses 8 through 12. And they describe the story of Israel and how God did elect them. He calls them to be his people by his mercy. And then he doesn't just call them in, but he He nurtures them and he's so persistent with his people all along the way. And this just tells basically the whole story of Israel's deliverance away from Egypt. And God did incredible things there. And he gets rid. They have enemies and he gets rid of his their enemies and he sets them free. But, you know, that as incredible as the acts of God were, God's people didn't do everything exactly right. All along the way of their calling, they're doubting God. 
They're mumbling and they're complaining about God's decisions and the way He's doing things and how it's affecting them. And God's sovereign, His grace, He's just with them. Now they get disciplined, but it's always His goal to bring them into the promised land. It's always His goal to bless them and set them free. That they can live before them. It's always something good and they fight God the whole time. Now we can be guilty of that. I don't know about you, but there's times where I just fight God about things. I don't make it easy on God, this calling of righteousness and this calling into eternal life. It's not this something I just made that decision one time. Okay, God, I'm yours and I'm never not not going to do anything wrong ever again. I wish it was that easy. And you think about the times that we have resisted God. As a matter of fact, right now there are areas in our lives where we are resisting God. We're not living up to the calling. And God's response, sure, it might be discipline, but it's constant, persistent grace. Come on. Because I have something really good for you. Come on. I got something really, really good for you. Come on. Come on. Okay, you learn your lesson with that. You learn your lesson now. It's always because he has something good for us. A display of glory and a display of love. His love endures forever. So he takes us in. Fifth, he is everlasting. Verses 13 and 14. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all ages. God is forever. There's absolutely no getting rid of God. It's just a truth. Nothing will outlast God. His character will remain as it is because it's good and there's nothing you can do to improve it. His commands and his ways, what he has in mind for all things and how he created it, it's not going to change. Because he's always right. There's nothing to change. And it just, it just, he goes on in glory forever and ever. And his ways are always exalted forever and ever. He's an eternal God. So his presence will remain. His persons will remain. His commands, his truths will remain. And what this means is that we can sin. Not that we should. But, but we can sin all we want. And there's people that do that. We can rebel against God all we want. We can deny him all we want, we can delude ourselves all we want. We can think positively against him all we want. We can ignore him and curse him all we want. God's eternal. It does not affect him. It doesn't change him. He's everlasting. Which means if God never changes, then who's going to have to change eventually or pay the price for it? There's nothing we can do. And sometimes we try to change God. We try to conform God. There's nothing to change. Either we change or we face the consequences and we change only through the supernatural power of Christ. The God is everlasting and because he's just stuck being incredible. He is worthy of praise. Then the sixth reason, because he alone is God. Might sing that song as well. He alone is God. The idols of the nations are, verse 15, skipping ahead, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. 
Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. You know, the biggest problem with false gods is that they're not gods at all. That's what Scripture says. It's not that they're lesser gods or they're partial gods. They aren't gods at all. And unfortunately, man has set their hope and fabricated things that aren't even really gods, but they're made out to be gods. And they're false gods. God alone is the one and only true God. And it reminds me of when I was thinking about this, the Wizard of Oz. And you have this great figure, this impressive being on the screen that can solve man's problem in supernatural ways until Toto came along and slipped behind the screen and pulled the curtain back. And what was there but just a man? Just a man trying to pretend he was something that he wasn't, trying to pretend he could solve all these problems. And behind every false god with the false promises, it's just the ideas of man trying to pretend, yes, I am the way. I can fix this. I've got the answer to this. Sooner or later, the screen will be pulled back. And what we're all going to see, believe or not, is we're going to see there's really only one God. And we, we believe lies. We follow wrong things and had false hopes. And we praise Him because He alone is God. He alone is worthy. Everything else is just that offer of best the wizard could do is the hot air balloon to get you back home. Seventh and last. We praise God because God takes pleasure in all that He does. Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven, on earth, in the seas, and all the deeps. That's the kind of God that we serve. That's the kind of God that we have been called to praise and to worship. He rejoices in the overflowing satisfaction of everything that he does. Can you imagine? He takes pleasure in absolutely everything. Philippians 2.13, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He does whatever he pleases and he's pleased with whatever he does. And he's worthy of praise at. And a part of part of this is because he's he's never under any kind of restraint. To where the final product would only turn out halfway. He's not under any kind of time restraint. He's not under any kind of external pressure to rush into something or to make a Decision prematurely. That's why he always gets the results that he wants. He's pleased with absolutely everything. And Philippians also says, you know, what what he starts, he's going to bring to completion. The final product is going to be incredibly joyful and pleasing to everything that bows down to him. So he's perfectly free to decide whatever he wants. Whatever he decides is perfectly good and right. And the results are always exactly what he wants because he has no limits. Nobody's twisting his arm to do things. Isaiah 46 10, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. NIV says, I will do all that I please. 
It's good to praise a God like that. It's good to reckon ourselves and, and to come under that kind of God. We're to praise him for that very fact that he has perfect freedom to do as he pleases. That he delights in absolutely everything. There's things in you. There's things in this congregation that God greatly delights in. He's so pleased with it because it's his work. And his work is perfect. He's never a victim. Well, it would have been different if, like we do. He's not a victim. Nobody ever twisted his arm to do anything he didn't want to do. He doesn't, it's not that he takes pleasure in evil itself, not that he takes pleasure in all things, because there are things in this world that are wrong. And they're evil. And what he does is he exerts his wrath against these things because he's holy and he's righteous. And then he gets glory out of it. That doesn't mean that he delights in what others do. He delights in everything that he himself does. Doesn't mean that he delights in everything that happens in this earth. Because we know in our fall in our fallen nature that our life is filled with tragedy. I disappoint myself. Others disappoint me. There's pain. We wrestle with these things. But what he does is he glorifies himself by making them right, by redeeming them, and by punishing those that deserve to be punished in the way they deserve to be punished. That's what brings him glory. That's what righteousness is. And justice is. He glorifies himself. You think about the act of humanity that seems like all hope was lost, and that's when Christ was on the cross. You think he's cornered. He doesn't have anywhere to go. What's going to become of him now? What about God's plan and God's promises? And, and God turned all of those terrible, heinous, evil actions, all the suffering and pain. It's not that he took delight in the fact that Christ's flesh was, was pulled off his body through the whippings. It's not that he's a sadist and he's a bloodthirsty warrior and he takes delight in evil itself, but he takes delight in the justice and the righteousness of punishing that which desires which means that life is not always going to be this way. He brings healing to the pain and the brokenness, and he does it through exerting his wrath. And those that believe in Christ are spared from that. Those that reject God and his saving powers will only face that which is exactly perfect, what they have earned through their own deeds. So God is pleased with everything that he does. So do we stand in awe? We've just been reminded by the psalmist, this inspired word of God. Seven reasons, among others, that God is so worthy of our praise. And that praise is not a man-centered thing. It's a God-centered thing. We come to the table, it's a God-centered thing. So that is our task and that is our calling. O house of Israel, verse 19. Bless the Lord, O house of Aaron. Bless the Lord. O house of Levi, bless the Lord. You who fear the Lord, bless the Lord. Blessed be the Lord from Zion, he who dwells in Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Let us praise God for he is good. Let us praise God for his sovereign election on our lives and praise him for his creative wonders that we enjoy every Sunday or every time we visit the church. It's a, it's a beautiful piece of property that we've been blessed with. We praise God for it, for his persistent grace. In spite of our resistance. For his immutability. He's perfect and he'll never change. 
And that he is God alone. And that he takes pleasure in all he does. Let's enter into a time of continued worship and praise with God. And then we'll come to the table as those that have been called to be saints of God. May God bless the preaching of his word.